All right. Uh, today we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. We've been on a journey with Jesus. It's an exciting journey. I hope you are enjoying this journey. And not just on Sunday morning, but you are working through the challenges that we hear from God's Word in this journey. Today we're going to talk about the impact of Jesus' ministry. So if you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, we'll be beginning in verse 7. And we'll read down through verse 19. We'll look at this, then we'll come back and uh, make some comments. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designated them apostles, that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So here is a little bit of a summary of Jesus' ministry. And so really we're going to focus on three aspects, and it's very simple. The first thing we're going to look at is the attraction of Jesus, and then secondly, the authority of Jesus, and then thirdly, the appointment by Jesus. So first we see the attraction of Jesus. He had just preached in the synagogue and he healed the man with the withered hand. And so there was a growing opposition to his word and his work. But at this point, Jesus could be anything but ignored. Because when we look at the end of Chapter 3, verse 6, the preceding passage. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. They did not like what he was doing, so what does Jesus do? He sees and feels the growing opposition, so he goes outside the synagogue, away from the synagogue, away from the center of population of the city to the north side of the lake. And where does everybody go? where Jesus is. The attraction was unbelievable. And then I thought to myself, I wonder what would happen if somehow the word spread that Pastor Roy is going to give his sermon down at Ravine Lake. How many of you would walk down there to hear me? Don't raise your hand because I'd probably be discouraged. The reality is probably nobody would walk down there, especially this time of year, to say, Roy, we love you, we'll pray for you, but you're on your own, bro. Um, the truth is, I don't have that kind of attraction because I don't have that kind of power and authority in my life like Jesus did. 
These people came from a long way away. When we look at the places that are mentioned, it's unbelievable how far they came from. But before I get to that, I'm going to get ahead of myself. He says that his time had not yet arrived. And so we see the attraction of Jesus, and he says, You go up to the feast in John 7, 8. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Jesus' time had not yet come that he was going to give his life on the cross. He had training and teaching and equipping to do. He had miracles yet to perform. He had lessons yet to share. And so he wasn't, his time had not yet come. Here's another verse in John 7.30. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yes, it's true that there was a growing opposition to Jesus and his ministry, but it's also true that he had more ministry yet to do, and he wasn't ready yet to fully reveal himself as the Messiah. And that's important because we're going to see that in a moment and what came out. So Jesus, in verse 7, he withdrew, the Bible says, with his disciples. A disciple is a learner or a follower of Jesus. So here in this mass of people, there are people who want to follow Jesus, who want to learn from Jesus. But also, whenever you have a crowd of that size, there are people who are only interested in being a part of the crowd and not being a true disciple. And so, because here's what it tells us in John 6, 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. No longer. In other words, the teaching became so difficult of giving up our life to follow Christ that many people didn't want to do that. And so here, as Jesus continues this journey and shares his message, the crowds get actually thinner, smaller. But here... They're growing. The word had spread. And it says that they came from how far? From Judea. Judea was quite a ways away. The shortest distance from Judea to Galilee had to go through Samaria as well. The Jews would have run, run around Samaria. Jerusalem, even further south, if you draw a straight line from Jerusalem up to where he was, the north side of the lake, you're talking about almost the distance from here to Brookings. Now think about people coming from that distance. And even further away, he gives other places that he mentions. Idumea, the regions across the Jordan, Tyre and Sidon, which is in the northwest. Um, Tyre and Sidon. So they come from all these places to hear the crowd would have swelled to thousands of people at this time. And Jesus is performing these miracles. He's delivering people from demons. The whole region of Galilee is spread. Back earlier in this gospel, we saw where he healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed the sick. He drove out demons. He healed various diseases. He cleansed a leper. He healed a paralytic. He healed a man with a withered hand. Simply through a word or a touch, Jesus healed people. So is it any wonder why people were coming with their illnesses, with their diseases, with their infirmities? They wanted to be touched by Jesus. They believed that Jesus could do something for them. And so they come. They didn't have modern medicine like we have. We can run out to the pharmacy and get this and that and fix a lot of things. They didn't have that. 
And so that was even more of an attraction for them to come to him. But because he performed these miracles in public, it was hard for anyone to deny what happened. He performed them in high definition, right in front of their eyes, so they could see. The only real rebuttal that people could muster was that he was performing these miracles by the power of Satan. If you look down in Mark chapter 3, later in verse 22, it says, The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. They're saying, He's using an evil influence to do his work, which was false. But that's what they were embracing, many of them. And so Jesus comes to them, and the disciples begin to fall off over time. And that's why the scripture says in Matthew 7 that wide is the gate and easy is the way that leads to destruction. And many go through that gate. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard, the Bible says, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So the masses of people are not, even in our world today, following Jesus. They're not attracted. They're more in that other camp against him not believing him, rejecting him. And that's why he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will be the ones who get to heaven. So here is the challenge for us. We don't have the attraction of Jesus. We don't have that. I don't have that. You don't have that. So what is the appeal for us? I think it comes in Titus 2.10. Here's what it says. Not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that, and here's the key, in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. In other words, what is there in my life that is making the gospel attractive? What is there in your life that is making the gospel attractive to a lost world? And I think there's two things that will do that. One is our teaching, what we teach. What Jesus taught attracted people because he was teaching something that was strange to them. All the other religious leaders were teaching something else. Jesus brought a gospel message of freedom and hope and deliverance from sin that came through the grace of God. And so they were attracted to his teaching, but even beyond that, they were attracted to his life. Are people attracted to our life by how we live? In other words, is my marriage such that the love of Christ is in my marriage? Is my relationship such that people are attracted to the gospel by how I raise my children? how I seek to parent them, how I seek to encourage them to walk with the Lord. Is that attractive? Is it attractive for somebody to come in to see to a church full of people worshiping the Lord together in unity and harmony and loving one another and bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ? Is that attractive to the world? And I say, yes, it is. If we do that, we gain that attraction. 
The gospel gains traction when we do that. God help us do that. That's what God has given to us. That we become more concerned, and Jesus was more concerned about meeting people's needs than he was the rules of the Sabbath. We talked about that the other week. Am I making the gospel attractive by how I live? Secondly, the authority of Jesus. Jesus had authority over disease, death, and demons. Notice what it says here in verse 8. When they heard all he was doing, they came from all over. Sound like Black Friday crowd, right? Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. If you look back in chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him. He did that often. If you look in chapter 4, verse 1, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat out in it on the lake. So he did that to get away from the crowd. There were so many people there. But they see the authority of Jesus. He speaks a word and the person can see. He speaks another word and the person can hear. He speaks another word and the mute begins to talk. He speaks another word and the lame gets up and walks. He speaks a word to the leper. He touches the leper and his skin is clean, free of disease. That's incredible authority. He speaks another word to the demon-possessed man and the evil spirit has to flee. And so what do they say? Look in verse 11. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. They knew, they could see, this is no evil spirit. This is somebody with a different spirit and a different power and a greater power and a greater authority than they had. And he told them they had to flee. And he says this then in verse 12, but he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Why? His work was not finished. His teaching was not complete. His training was not done. He did not want evil spirits being the testimony for him. He called disciples to do that. He calls you and I to do that, to be his voice, to be his ambassador. He's called us to be that and to do that. You see, the Jews idea of Messiah is what Jesus would come in military might and power and overthrow Rome and rise the Jewish people, that they would be in authority and in control. But Jesus, on the other hand, came as a suffering servant in humility and love and would ultimately sacrifice his life on the cross. He came to demonstrate his love to the world and die on a cross. He was not ready yet for his mission to be totally revealed. He had not yet told them he was going to die. He had disciples to call, to train, to equip. Jesus overpowered disease, demons, and debilitating illnesses. He demonstrated his power and authority over these people, over these diseases, 
to show people he was more powerful than any affliction or infirmity they might have. So here's how this applies to us today. Is there anything in your life that has authority over you that is defeating you? Anything at all in your life that's defeating you? If there is, and you have allowed that authority to take root in your life, I am happy to announce God has authority over that authority in your life. Here's what I'm saying. There are people who have addictions. Those addictions have authority in people's lives. God says... I have authority over your addiction. People are addicted to pornography, for instance. That's an authority that is robbing you of your freedom and joy in Christ. And God says, I have authority over the addiction of pornography to set you free, to cleanse your mind, and to make you a godly man or woman. That's just one. Other people are addicted to drugs and alcohol, sex, whatever, you name it. There's all kind of addictions that people have, but here's the good news. Jesus said, I have authority not only to deliver from diseases and debilitating infirmities, I have authority to deliver you from every and any addiction that has authority over your life that is defeating you that makes you run in fear and shame. See, here's what, here's what addictions do. They make people run in fear and shame and say, I can't. And that's what I love about our Celebrate Recovery ministry. It's a wonderful ministry. It can come and say, you know what? We're all broken. And you've heard me say that over and over and over. We are all broken. But God has authority to come in and speak truth into our life and healing into our life and deliverance from every and any addiction. And if I didn't believe that, I'd just pack up my Bible and pack up my wares and go home. (laughs) But I believe this. I've seen it. And so have you, if you've been around very long. And that, to me, is exciting. Jesus has broken every chain of addiction and can set you free. Amen? Amen. So what is it you are wrestling with? What is it that has got you down in fear and shame that you are not turning over to the authority of Christ? Would you give it to him? He wants to take it from you. He wants to heal you just like he healed the people in Scripture. There are too many people who are living defeated, and God wants to deliver you. Well, let's go on to the third one. The third one is just as powerful, the appointment by Jesus. It says in verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside. He called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designated them apostles, that they might be with him. He might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. Now, when Jesus went up on the mountainside... In Luke 6, 12, here's what he did on the mountain. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. 
And all night he continued in prayer to God. So before he selected these disciples, these community, these ambassadors that he was choosing, these witnesses, he prays all night. It's a reminder to us we need to pray. We need to pray for God to raise up leaders and then to appoint those leaders as we pray and seek the Lord. Here's the other thing that's important for us to realize. There were already religious leaders in Israel, right? We saw the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. There were all kinds of religious leaders in Israel. So why is he appointing disciples? I'll tell you why. He was bringing an indictment against Israel and saying, you religious leaders are unspiritually you're disqualified, you're unqualified, and you are spiritually unfit to be my representatives. That's what he was telling them. You are unqualified and unfit to be my representatives. Therefore, I am praying for the Father to send people who will be fit to be my representatives. And the reason I say that is because if we look at the Sadducees, the Sadducees despised Jesus because he cleansed the temple and he overthrew their money tables for corrupting worship in the temple. So he despises, the Sadducees despise Jesus. The Pharisees denounced Jesus and his teaching because he claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath and claimed to be able to forgive sins. The Herodians developed a plot to kill Jesus. So Jesus is like, you rejected me, I reject you. And so what does Jesus do? He brings these people together, and here's what's amazing. What kind of people does he pick? What kind of people does he pick? Look here in Acts. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. <laughs> uneducated, common men. And that doesn't mean if you have an education or you have a title that God can't use you. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is, God wants to use ordinary people to do his work. Because so many times the lie of Satan is, well, I've got to have this and I've got to have that and I've got to be able to... No, you don't. Are you an ordinary person? That's the people God picks. And I'm glad because if he didn't, I probably wouldn't be a part of it. I find myself very ordinary. Very ordinary. Jesus did not have a list of qualifications. They were not rich. They did not have big titles. They did not have theology degrees. They were not even religious leaders. They were ordinary men. They did not submit an impressive resume. They did not have outstanding credentials. They were so ordinary. They had one thing that I think Jesus, why he picked them. They were attracted to him and they wanted to follow him when he called them they followed they simply obeyed 
Jesus chose men with different backgrounds. They were not perfect. They had faults. They were fishermen. They were tax collector. There was a zealot who was a passionate and violent nationalist known for killing people. Jesus wanted them to learn how to live together in unity and fellowship, and he wanted them to learn how to love each other. And that's what he wants us to do in the church. The scripture, as well as Bible scholars, suggests two purposes for calling these men. I'll look at them quickly. Two purposes for calling these men. The first one, it would be easy to skip over, but actually... It's a very important one. The first one is he called them to be with him. To be with him. They took knowledge, it says, the crowd took knowledge that they had been with Jesus. There's something about you and I being in the presence of God, learning from him, sitting at his feet, spending time in prayer, in the word that transforms our lives. And there's no substitute for it. Jesus wanted them to be with him. Why? He didn't want to just teach them and train them and equip them. He wanted them to become like him. And that's how you, the only way you become like someone is you've got to spend time with them. And that's what he called them to do. And then the second thing was he wanted to send them out. The Great Commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations. I'm calling you. I want you to be like me, to do what I'm doing because I'm leaving. I'll be coming back, but I'm leaving you. I'm giving you that responsibility. He wanted them to be his witnesses, to be his ambassadors. Now, what are they going to share? I mean, he says, I want you to go out, figure something out to share. No. <laughs> he equipped them to do with two things. Here they are. First, a message to share. They didn't concoct their own message and come up with this idea of a gospel to redeem people. That was God's idea. He's just saying, I want you, here's the message. I want you to faithfully Take it, use it, share it. It would be a life-changing message, a counter-cultural message. It would call for people to give their lives to its cause. And secondly, a power to serve. They not only had the message, they had the authority and the power to deliver the message because the reality was they were going to face a lot of opposition. Jesus faced opposition. He not only gave them the power to serve, but here's the one none of us like, and I don't even like this one. He gave them the power to suffer. Anybody like suffering? Jesus suffered. There was a crowd against him. Not everybody wanted to receive his message. But there's a power to serve and there's a power to suffer that God gives us. And you know what? The gospel, when you talk about the gospel being attractive, do you know when the gospel is most attractive? Is when people are going through suffering 
and Christ is radiated. I think about Andrew Brunson, the pastor from Carolina, I think it was, North Carolina, who was in the Turkish prison for two years. And he counted it, he said, a privilege to suffer for Christ. He was falsely accused. He was being held falsely, false charges for two years in a Turkish prison. And he said, I count it a privilege to suffer for Christ. Why? He said, for the sake of the gospel. Powerful. Imagine the people who witnessed his testimony and what that means. They would be called on to give their lives for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And if you know the end story of the disciples, about all of them were executed in one way, shape, or form. So there's a power to serve, but there's also a power to suffer. And that's our challenge. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And as we do this morning, I just want to ask you, what about the attraction in your life? Is your life such as you think back over the past week or few weeks? What is there in your life that has made the gospel attractive? Your marriage, your relationship with your kids. And that's not all one way. The kids have to respond too. I know some of you have wayward children that breaks your heart and it breaks mine too. But are you doing everything you can to build bridges to make the gospel attractive? to your neighbors, to people that you rub shoulders with and do business with? What about the authority in your life? Do you have an addiction that has authority over you? Will you surrender that to God and say, God, you have greater authority to break the chain of that? And I want to tell you, I think the first step in doing that is you need to find someone that you are comfortable with to share with, who can pray with and hold you accountable. That's a vital step in doing that. And then the third one, what about the appointment? God has appointed us. He has given us a message to share a power to serve, and a power to suffer. Are you going through something in your life? And in the midst of that, you're radiating Jesus. We hope you've enjoyed today's message like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web 
by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.